This is alternative history. Darn it! This is alternative. Oh my god! This is alternative history. my own beginning and my own ending excellent so as as you know this is the alternative history podcast i am Rodrigo. this is brian uh last week we did uh the alternative history of die hard we the thesis was should it be considered a christmas movie yeah uh, we both said no um but apparently the vast majority of human beings disagree with us however and before we even jump into that something you guys may have noticed recently we have Twitter polls on our Twitter site. So yeah. last week we did the Die Hard, or two weeks ago rather, and the past two weeks has been Die Hard's. Uh, is it Yippie Kaye or Yippie Kaine? And the week, the two weeks prior to that was the Minnesota Vikings. Should they have received an alternative history, either won the NFC Championship or gone to yeah. the Super Bowl? Yeah. And as Brian alluded to, Die Hard, the mass majority of people that responded to our poll. Yeah, so uh, was uh, there's people movie. who voted 85% Went with Yippee-ki-yay that it was a Christmas movie. 15% Yippee-ki-nay. I was firmly in the nay. I was back and forth and yeah. eventually said no, so I'm surprised. So I guess we were wrong on that one, yep. but uh, uh, to each their own. And then with the Vikings, it was 54%. Yes, they should have at, at the very least beat the Atlanta Falcons in the NFC Championship. Of that 54%, 18% said that they should have just beat the NFC uh, won the NFC Championship game, and 36% said that they should have won the Super Bowl, which is the camp that we were in. Exactly. So, so, so we do say thank you for everybody that participated. Yeah, for everyone that polls. voted, That's thank awesome. you. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to listen or just give us your opinion. And we will be dropping more polls. Please participate some more. And like we say, we really appreciate all the interaction. So as we say, this is alternative history. We provide normally we provide a topic. Uh, we give you the history of that topic and determine whether or not that topic merited a different result, a different perception, and alternative history. Yeah, and with this episode, we're, we're kind of changing up the format a little bit. Doing something a little special. I think Brian alluded alluded to it in one of our earlier episodes, saying that this is really just a ruse for us to talk about things that we want to talk <laughs> about. And so when we came up with this idea for alternative history, Brian also mentioned it a long time ago in one of the episodes. It's not like this is some new idea. Like There have been alternative history in media and entertainment Really, this is the beginning of the genre, essentially, right? Yeah. Like you, you can argue it's always been out there. And one of the things that we determined in this show, once we started rolling, we said that we were going to examine a couple pieces of, like you could say, alternative history pieces of entertainment. Yeah, like pop culture alternative history that, that we'll, we'll look at it and we'll talk about it in depth. And, and let you guys know if maybe what you guys think. If you watch it, yeah. let us know what you guys think about it. So, for example, we, we talked about things we could look at. Like, Brian and I used to watch a show back in the day called Life on Mars. Yeah. That was a really, I don't know if that was a good one. Back then, it was a pretty interesting alternative history television show. Sure. Right? Yeah. We used to also be obsessed with The Simpsons, and one of the things The Simpsons always did is change their origin story, so maybe one day we'll, we'll examine one they of those up, episodes. Yeah, they updated their, they update their or, origin stories for each, like, new decade that the show, the show's been on since the 80s, like, late 80s. Yep. So every decade, they kind of update The Simpsons' origin story to, so, to mesh with, uh, approximately how old they constantly are in the show. And they were funny back in the day, so perhaps one of these episodes we might take a look at one of those episodes sure. or something like yeah. that. 
So this week, we're going to examine Star Trek, the original series episode, City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, it's from the uh, first season. came out on April 6th, 1967. 28th episode. Tell me about 1967, Brian. So yeah, that was a long, <laughs> long, long time ago. So the movies that were... The top movies of 1967 are as follows. The Graduate, The Jungle Book, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner... Bonnie and Clyde. I so know wait, that's those are all like classics. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like I'm not taking a bag. Like I was like, wait, 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 wait. So yeah, never mind. I'm um, sorry. Fantastic. The movies. Dirty Dozen, Valley of the Dolls, You Only Live Twice, which is a, I think it's James, James Bond, Bond movie. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to Sir with Love, The Born Losers. I've never I don't know that one. Never heard of that the one. first like seven you just said I know about and very well. Thoroughly Modern Millie. I don't know. Um, I don't know the last two movies, but those first six or seven are like institutional classics. Like yeah. if you think about it, like The sure. Jungle Book is a Amazing Disney movie. I love that movie. Uh, the Graduate. I love that movie. That was a fantastic movie. And yeah. and uh, and Bonnie and Clyde. I think is one of the best movies ever made. Sure. It's yeah. a great movie. So notable other notable movies: uh, Barefoot in the Park, uh, Doctor Doolittle, The Producers, Cool Hand Luke, mm. In the Heat of the Night, fantastic, and In Cold Blood. You like Cool Hand Luke a lot, right? Yeah, it's I've I wouldn't say a lot. I've watched it a couple times. I don't think I've ever um, seen it all the way through. There's a scene through. where he eats, like, I don't know, like 40 eggs or something. Like, I forget how many eggs he eats in the course of, like, an hour. That's actually kind of funny. I'm familiar but, with that movie because of Cousin Rose's Civil War. Yep. yep. Definitely. So, TV. The Andy Griffith Show. The Lucy Show. Gomer Pyle. Gunsmoke. Family Affair. Bonanza. The Red Skeleton Show. The Dean Martin Show. The Jackie Gleason Show, and Saturday Night at the Movies. So apparently, like, the 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 running thing was put your name, the your name show, you're in the top ten. What I find amazing about that stuff too, what I find amazing about the shows you just mentioned is how I feel like we, like people our age and a couple years younger and a couple years older, are connected to the older generation because those are the shows that were on in syndication when we were little kids. Like, when we were, like, like now there's so many channels, yeah. right? Back in the day, there were only, like, five or six channels, and, and two of those channels literally were reruns of stuff. Like Yeah, so, and there's a couple other shows here. They're not, they weren't in the top ten, but uh, Green Acres, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, um, you, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Lassie. Those are all on syndication when we were kids. Yeah, all the time. When you talk about yeah. that, that's like a rundown of, like, once cartoons were over, that's the shows that were on all the time. Andy Griffith Show, Lassie, uh, Green Acres, Dragnet, you know what I mean? My Three Sons. Like, yeah, I, I don't remember watching them. I don't really remember those shows, but I do remember, like... Them being on. I just don't remember episodes of yeah, those shows. Yeah, sure. Know? It's, it's crazy. Um, so Star Trek, the, uh, there's no real definitive spot in the ratings for it. It looks to have been around somewhere around the 50s mm-hmm. in, in the ratings uh, in 1967, yeah. which would have been their initial year that they were um, on the air. Uh, music. Uh, the top top singles were To Sir With Love by Lulu. I, I know the song, but I, I don't, don't know, know the... Okay. I never heard of the, uh, the singer. Artist. The Letter by The Box Tops, mm-hmm. Ode to Billy Joel, Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry, Windy by The Association, and I'm a Believer by The Monkees. So, I'm not really too familiar with those top singles, but the... Except for The Monkees song. A lot of the albums that came out, I'm very familiar with. So, this is just a rundown of some great albums. The 
the Jimi Hendrix Experience Fantastic. came out with Are You Experienced, which was their debut album, and Axis Bold as Love. Both fan- yeah, uh, the Doors came out with their self t- self titled debut album. Cream came out with Disraeli Gears. Disraeli's Gear. That's Disraeli's fantastic. Gear. Yeah. Uh, Strange Brew, Sunshine of Your Love, Tales of Brave Ulysses. Um, just fantastic songs. Huh. Uh, Buffalo crazy. Springfield came out with Buffalo Springfield again. Bob Dylan, John Wesley Harding. And the Beatles came out with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club this Band, which is one of the best all-time classic albums ever. Yeah. yeah. And Magical Mystery Tour. That's a impressive year for music like for sure yeah like, that makes you smile thinking about that yeah so in the in the news uh u.s was still pretty ensconced in the uh the vietnam war uh the summer of love began with the monterey pop festival uh muhammad ali had refused to be in, in, inducted into the u.s army and is stripped of his heavyweight title and then he was later later that year he was convicted of draft evasion which was later overturned by U.S. Supreme Court, which leads to Thurgood Marshall became the first African-American U.S. Supreme Court justice. In 1967? Yep, in 1967. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is still the leader of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm. So It's a pretty historic year. Yeah, and it was right in the middle of the hippie, hippie movement. Um, we're going to, in future episode, we may get into that a little bit with uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, whether yep. or not that was a direct influence of the hippie movement, whether or not he intended it to be. Something along those lines, some, right? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere down the line. We'll, uh, so that leads us to... The sports in 1967. Oh, sports, of course. Uh, the Packers beat the Chiefs on January 15, 35 10 in the first Super Bowl on December 31st of the same year the Packers vanquished the Cowboys in the Ice Bowl 21-17 the Cardinals beat the Red Sox uh, four games to three Bob Gibson wins MVP the Kansas City Athletics become the Oakland Athletics Uh, the UCLA Bruins UCLA Bruins rather win the NCAA Championship against Dayton 79-64 it's the first of a record seven consecutive titles and uh, Wilt Chamberlain's Philadelphia 76ers beat Rick Barry's San Francisco Warriors four games to two you actually just mentioned exactly something I was going to say that Muhammad Ali stripped of title and banned from various boxing committees for refusing induction into the U.S. Army that was sports yeah I mean the best part of that was the Packers not only winning the Super Bowl, the then, first, and but they beat the uh, the Cowboys in the Ice Bowl, which is basically year. like Makes was about the it. Super Bowl exactly. as far as uh, Packers fans were concerned in 1967. Exactly. So that leads us now to Star Trek in 1967. Before we start with Star Trek, let me talk about Gene Roddenberry. Sure. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, born uh, August 19, 1921, dies October 24, 1991. Uh, American writer producer, most remembered for creating Star Trek. Uh, he's born in El Paso, grew up in Los Angeles. He uh, joins the U.S. Army, uh, the Air Force, rather, Army Air Forces, flies eight nine flights, and also becomes a commercial pilot afterwards, survives three crashes. Hmm. He, like I said, grew up in Los Angeles. After surviving the three crashes, That's he changes... more than I've ever survived. Exactly. He changes professions and becomes a police officer. Damn. As a police officer, also begins to... Uh, write teleplays and scripts. He changes his career and becomes a screenwriter. He has moderate success. How old was he? All, he did all this by when? Well, 1921 is when he was born. Yeah. So he starts writing and has moderate success in the late 50s okay. and early 60s. So he writes scripts for television shows like uh, Bat Masterson and 
Jefferson Drum. I'm not familiar with these shows. I do know of one show he wrote for, and he actually won an award for this show. He wrote an episode, uh, it's titled Helen of, I'm going to get this name wrong and I apologize, Helen of Abba Jinian. It's for a program called Have Gun, Will Travel. He won uh, the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Teleplay of 1958. Wow. So he, he changed his career at some point in the late 50s, mid 50s. He did a lot, yeah. Yep. So as this happens, he continues to... You uh, can only think that he would have had a podcast <laughs> if he was alive now. <laughs> I, can, I still can't believe the fact he survived three plane crashes, dude. Like that's, <laughs> that's like... I you I mean to me if you like, yeah like after the first one I'd have been like I ended up flying again I'll walk, I'll walk thanks. thank you very much take, take me to the nearest train so as he, boat. so as he's trying to write scripts for shows he's also attempting to write his own series nothing really catches essentially uh, and at one point Ron Berry's asked to write for this show called Riverboat set in 1860s Mississippi he discovers that the producers want no black people on the show. He argues so much that they end up firing him from the job. Good dude, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Uh, after he gets fired, Sir Lou Grade of Associated Television uh, wants Ron Berry to develop series and sets up his own production company, company in England. Uh, Ron Berry seriously considers moving to England, changes his mind, but uh, leverages this deal to negotiate a contract with Screen Gems. So he gets $100,000 guaranteed, and he's allowed to produce three programs. Okay. The reason I bring this up is not so much to, to bore people, but the reason that this is important is that in these three programs, he starts working with people who will eventually work with him on Star Trek. Sure. So, just real quick, he ends up creating one pilot called The Wild Blue. It went to pilot but was not picked up. Three main characters have names that later appear in Star Trek. So, one of the characters in that show was Philip Pike, Edward Jellicoe, and James T. Irvine. So, we'll talk about Star Trek in a minute, but we know that James T. Kirk, James T. Irvine, and Christopher Pike is, is a character that appears... Very briefly in Star Trek, and then later on in the future in Star Trek. But yeah. Pike is the name there. Sure. Also, he meets a lady named Major, I'm sorry, Majel Lee Hudick. She'll later be known as Major Barrett. Uh, Major Barrett. Uh, he creates another pilot called 333 Montgomery. It's about a lawyer. The lawyer is played by DeForest Kelly. Again, no real success getting picked up. No, none of these programs. Fantastic first name. DeForest, DeForest. exactly. Uh, his career with Screen Gems end in the late 1961. Uh, in the early 60s, either 61 or 62, it's noted that he discusses an idea about a multi-ethnic crew on an airship traveling the world uh, based on a film, Master of the World, from 1961. i actually never seen the movie. No. At the time, however, is not right for science fiction, so he begins to work on a program called The Lieutenant for Arena Productions. This program is picked up by NBC on Saturday night lineup at 7.30 p.m., premieres September 14, 1963, the show sets new radio records for the time slot. Again, the reason it's important to bring up this show is not to bore folks, but on this show, he works with people that are going to be on Star Trek, including Gene L. Kuhn, Gary Lockwood, those are producers and writers, mm -hmm. uh, Joe, Diago Joe Diagosta, another one, Leonard Nimoy and Nichelle Nichols are actors and actresses that appear in the show, and Majel Barrett will also appear in the show. So basically, he, uh, he gets, uh, the lieutenant last one season, he gets let go, as it's developing, he's already working on this idea for this show. He comes up with the airship idea. He develops it, develops it. On March 11th, 1964, he has a 16-page pitch. And on April 24th, he sends three copies and $2 to the Writer Guild of America to register his series. He calls it Star Trek. Yeah, from what I what I, what I found, he originally kind of sold it as a, uh, a Western in space. Exactly. So first... Wagon Trail, you Two Stars. Right I have it right there. Uh, yeah. the wagon Trail and Gunsmoke. But, yeah. So before there... He tries to sell it to MGM. They like it, but they don't buy it. 
Sure. Right? He then uh, he then goes to Desi, Desi Lu Productions. They are very interested. Instead of just offering a one-script deal, they actually hire him to be a producer and allow him to work on his own projects. Okay. So this, that kind of becomes a big deal. Desi Lu is having serious financial difficulties. Its only success is what you referred to as earlier was I Love Lucy. Yeah. So Roddenberry takes the idea of Star Trek to head of programming Oscar Katz and the duo immediately work on selling the series to networks. They take it to CBS, who ultimately passes, and they find out later that CBS ultimately passes because they're developing their own science fiction series, Lost in Space, and they were just trying to hear what they got with Star Trek. Kind of dirty, That's but the smart. Danger Will Robinson. Danger Will Robinson, exactly. Okay. So... Next, they take it to NBC, and to your point, they downplay the science fiction elements and highlight the links to both Gunsmoke and Wagon Trail. The network essentially funds three-story ideas, and the rest is essentially history. Hmm. So, Star Trek. Star Trek is 13 movies, 17 shows. The original series is James T. Kirk starring William Shatner, Spock, Leonard Nimoy, Uhura is Nichelle Nichols, and Dr. McCoy is DeForest. Debuted DeForest on, Kelly. it was on NBC, if I'm not mistaken, right? You're in 1966. Correct. The original series ran from 1966 to 1969. Um, so I'm just going to give a rundown of... Do it. Basic, it's a, lot, a large category of movies and, and shows. I'm just going to say, it, it's for me the most influential show ever. Yeah. It's the most influential sci-fi show ever. It's like, and real life show, period. And for me, uh, the, this was the first time I actually ever watched an episode. An episode of Star Trek. Like I, it's been on movie. the TV when I've been like sitting in rooms but I've never actually sat down and watched episodes and I, I mean I I found it uh, rather interesting I might uh, I might revisit let me uh, tell you some of these seasons but that's funny so from the original series 1966 to 1969 then you have the animated series which brought back most of the original cast 1973 to 1974 then then comes the next generation and these are the TV shows yep. the next generation from 1987 to 1994. Deep Space Nine. Well, Next Generation, that had Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. He's the main star's way here, yep. yep. Uh, Deep Space Nine, 1993 to 1999. Uh, Avery Brooks as Captain Benjamin Sisko. Sisko. Yep. Voyager, 1995 to 2001, where we have Kate Mulgrew as Captain Catherine Janeway, and she was the first female commanding officer in a leading role on Star Trek. And they just had... Not to, to highlight something earlier, DS9 was the first black captain. Um, oh, was he? In, in, okay. In, in Star Trek. Cool. Shows, rather. Enterprise, 2001 to 2005. Uh, Scott Bakula of Quantum Leap fame. Um, he was Captain Jonathan Archer. And that was billed as a prequel to the original show. Yep. Correct? It was good. And then now we have Discovery. It's on uh, currently 2017, it started. And. Uh, Sonequa Martin-Green as Lieutenant Commander Michael Burnham. Um, it is also a prequel to the show, which it's a. I think it sits in between Enterprise and the original really? series. I want to Somewhere. see this. Yeah, I can't. I, I'm I'm kind of mad at CBS for making me pay for it. That's why I haven't. Actually well, it's done on. It. Apparently, you can stream view it. it on Netflix too. Possibly, it may not be on there yet, but I know Netflix is has all the Star Trek shows. Yeah. So in between there, in between these seasons, uh, a whole shitload of movies came out. Well, so. not so much in between these seasons. Remember, they're canceled from 1967, and then again 1974. Like that's like the big break. And then in 1979, they finally make a movie. Like there's there's great. Yeah. So yeah, snowball. in between yep. the 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 break of the TV or the 
where the animated series ended into the next generation, there was several movies yep. here. So, exactly. so we go with Star Trek, the motion picture. I think that's an awesome title. <laughs> just in case. Well, I mean, I suppose, like, because it was just in a TV show, everyone knew it as. So they had to let everyone know. No, this is the, the real deal. Picture. Yes, it's the film. Exactly. So just in case this podcast ever makes it to the big screen, it's going to be called... The Alternative History Podcast, The, the Motion Picture. So. Like the worst movie ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two assholes sitting around talking, talking. about shit. Uh, Star Trek, The Motion Picture came out in 1979. Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan! I think it's a fantastic film, by 1982. The Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Where'd he go? I, I've never I, seen it. We'll talk about it. I'll talk about it in a second. 1984. Uh, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, which I'm assuming after they found Spock, they came. They had to come back to the crew. That's not what it was. 1986. <laughs> uh, Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier, 1989, and Star Trek Six: The Undis- Undiscovered three. Country, 1991. So what I love about the titles of these movies is they're real on the nose. Like they're telling you what's gonna exactly happen. what's going to happen. Yeah. Khan got all wrathy, right? I'm assuming. He got a little yeah. angry, yes. Spock. They were searching you had, for you had Spock to go find in that his movie. Ass. Yep, yep, yep. Then they had to voyage home, yeah. which they did. Yeah. They found a final frontier in 1989. These last two don't work Which so probably well. led them to the undiscovered no, country. No, no. So I'm assuming they all kind of play off each other? No, not no? really. Okay. I'm just going to, that's that's the way I'm going to work it. <laughs> nice drive. Nope, I got you. Star Trek Generations. So this is the new cast. Yep. Uh, so one through six, motion picture through the undiscovered country. That was the original cast. 79, 1991. Then they got too old and unsightly, so they got to the new cast. Uh, Star Trek Generations, 1994. Star Trek First Contact, 1996. Insurrection, 1998. Insurrection, 98. Star Trek Nemesis, 2002. This was the movie that we alluded to earlier that I totally slept through. fell asleep through in the theater, yes. Um, I had some uh, some things that helped me sleep. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily the movie's fault as right. opposed to extracurricular activities. Understood. Star Trek 2009... Well, that's the reboot that we're currently in. Star Trek Into Darkness, 2013. Uh, those two were directed by J.J. Abrams. Starring Christopher Pike. And then jumped ship to Star Wars. Yep. And then Star Trek Beyond, 2016. So, now this is really interesting. So, there's supposed to be an untitled... There's an untitled Star Trek film that is scheduled to be produced at some point. Possibly directed by Quentin Tarantino. I heard that, yep. Possibly about... The episode we're we're about to talk City about City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of Forever. He was on Quentin Tarantino was on the Nerdist podcast in 2015, and he mentioned that if he were to direct a Star Trek movie, he would possibly. And I may be butchering a little bit. I think someone asked him, "Would you ever direct Star Wars?" And he said he's he'd be more apt to direct Star, Star Trek. Trek, and that revisiting the original series would probably be something he would be interested in. And he mentioned this episode, City on. The Edge of Forever as something that you could flesh out to a... I mean, the concept's great. That's awesome. So, and Pat, Patrick Stewart said he'd be totally interested in reprising Jean-Luc Picard if Quentin Tarantino does that. So I don't know how they would do it, but that would be super sweet because we could break into what they would do if we need to a little bit later. But I think that's really interesting that Quentin Tarantino would be interested in doing yeah. Star Trek. So you say you actually never watched a lot of Star Trek, which is different for me. I watched the hell out of Star Trek. Yeah. Like, it was... Uh, when I was talking about syndication... When and we didn't get cable for a long time, so we had like the the syndication channels in Milwaukee. For that reason, I watched Star Trek a lot, and I remember this episode being on all the time. Not all the time, but I remember watching it more than once, so it stuck in my brain. The other thing you'll remember this 
people in Milwaukee might remember. There's a there's a grocery store called Pick and Save. Before chain movie rental spots, there were rental places all yeah. over the city, and so you could get a pick and play is what it was called. They had the movie rental shop in Pick and Save. So my parents would always get a movie. And they'd always let me rent one, and I always rented Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Did they have a curtained off area? Where yeah, they kept all the dirty movies. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, oh. this is curtained off from the rest of the place. But they all probably of, uh, most of my movie renting uh, took place in liquor stores, and they're probably those places. Exactly. And then you'd walk in there, and then they would have the movies that were fit for like normal human beings, and then the the degenerates would go behind the curtain. And this this also carries over in non-franchise uh, rental places. So there's a place. Like, it used to be called, like, 76-cent rental in one of the suburbs in Milwaukee, in yeah. Shorewood. And just like you say, you'd walk in, there's a normal rental shop, normal rental shop, and then in the back room, kids are not allowed to go into. Well, you know what I'm saying? But so, the magic happens. So, so, so like I said, I, I watched a lot of Star Trek growing up, and I really watched the movies. And so, besides Star Trek 3, when you go to the library, you could rent Star Trek 4. So, free. I think one of these movies, Star Trek 4 or Star Trek 5, I'm kind of, I can't remember which one. One of those two, we went on a field trip in grade school to go see. Probably and the I did actually, home. I remember I, enjoying it. I think it. that was the voice. Is, because... is that the one where he's, uh, so Captain Kirk's thing is like, one of his things is like he, he's never going to die alone, right? Like he knows he's not going to die alone or something, or he knows he's going to die alone. I can't. I, I thought it was in one of these movies where he's like rappelling down a cliff and he was almost going to die. Uh, that's in Star Spock. Trek Five. Okay, okay. The Final Frontier. Yeah. And that's the one that I saw. I remember that the Star Trek Four made a big deal because that was when they came back in time to 1986 to save the whales. That's what I remember about that mm. about that movie. That's, did they need saving? Yes. Okay. Because that, that well, of course they did. This was the in 1986. Oh, well, uh, yeah, we were murdering <laughs> at a record pace. Whaling was a thing. Alarming then. rate, exactly. Yeah. And so, like Star Trek, as you say, before we break in the episode, I just want to say what Star Trek does, right? So Star Trek does things in, like you say, seven or seven shows and thirteen movies. They do a lot, right? It's one of these programs that's like all things for all people because you have so much stuff going on. So the first and foremost, they bite Shakespeare in all of their series. Like that uh, Undiscovered Country is a reference to a line in, in a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. Like they, they do a lot of Shakespearean things in their show. The other thing they do, they do a lot of subterfuge. I don't think they do a good job of that, like espionage. It's not a lot of fun episodes, a lot of good movies that where they try to focus on that, but they, that they execute it very well. Uh, they do a lot of stuff like life extension, like where like you know you're uploading your conscious to a computer and you're going to live longer, like that kind of shit. And like they do a pretty good job with that, but it's okay at best. You know what I mean? It's not the best that they do. Johnny Depp tried to do that in a movie. In a movie, stunk. Remember uh, when we were younger than that? The Lawnmower Man. Lawnmower Man. They tried yeah. to do something like that. So doesn't, the, it doesn't 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 seem to work. Does it translate? Yeah. It doesn't translate in the original thing that's on television that was super deep science fiction wise. So it's funny that you, you mentioned these movies that bite these ideas, but that, that happens because it's one of the more influential things. They also deal with like, you know, big omnipotent, all powerful as possible to stop type aliens. Like that happens as well. They do okay with that. Some people like that stuff. Some people don't like what what Star Trek really starts to do very well. Uh, they do like. Uh, mirror to society. So when we mentioned earlier, like the, the save the whale kind of shit. Mm-hmm. That's what they show is like they talk about what, what we're doing wrong in the past. That'll be fixed in the future. Like yeah. we'll stop doing this kind of and shit. And lest anyone think you're not a Star Trek expert, you, I believe you mentioned to me once that you've watched 
if not every episode, almost every episode, and you're still, or maybe still working on it? No, this was like two or three years ago, Netflix put them all on, I found myself in a show hole, I just started watching it from the beginning, <laughs> and, I, I, and throughout the course of many years, I've been able to watch all of them. So, a show hole, I mean, that can mean several different things. I had nothing to watch for a little while. They do AI rights, for example, something that we may need to consider in the future going forward, because yeah. it might be a real thing. The thing that they do the best at, they do time displacement. Like, I hate time travel stories. Like, I think it's really dumb. But when Star Trek does them, they do an okay job with them. And once they do time displacement, what leads next to is their alternative histories. They yeah. do this. It's a theme that happens in all of their shows. And their best shows of alter- are, are alternative history. And you gave me an assignment to watch a couple other ones. I didn't want to watch I just wanted you to look at them. Look yeah. them up. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't trying I to thought they did. Visit. I thought they did a real... Uh, Real good, uh, real good jobs with. I mean, every anytime you time travel, you're going to be able to poke a hole in the logic. Yes. But they do the way they did it. I thought was 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 rather interesting, and and I mean they're all they're well done. And there are other times that they do dumb shit going back in space, like in Star Trek Four and one of the episodes they slingshot around the sun, and that's how they go back in time. Like they're even Star Trek struggles with time travel. But the main thing that they do well is alternative history. We'll get to that in one moment. So, let me get right back. Roddenberry and that Majel Barrett lady, mm-hmm. they end up marrying each other. Uh, they start having their relationship in the early days of Star Trek. Uh, she specifically wrote, he specifically wrote the part of number one for her in the original pilot. I think you mentioned this, we'll talk about later, the pilot isn't what they end up showing is the first episode that people see. Yeah, it's like a, it, it's a whole alternative history where it basically, it's, it did a pilot and it kind of scrapped almost all of it except for exactly uh, Spock I was I said it right there and, and space travel and that USS Enterprise but but basically everybody but Spock uh, Major Barrett ends up being the voice in Star Trek The Next Generation she ends up being the voice of the computer okay. and she becomes a recurring character as a mother of one of the characters so she becomes firmly entrenched in Star Trek as well uh, basically she, in the early days of Star Trek she suggested Nimoy after their work on the lieutenant and so once Roddenberry thought about Spock as Leonard Nimoy, he had no other thoughts as another actor. So he went with that. Uh, the first episode to air was on 19, uh, September 8, 1966. Uh, multi-ethnic, diverse crew. Sulu, Spock, Uhura, Scotty. This is something that was very important to Gene yeah. Roddenberry. <laughs> to your point, Gene Roddenberry was immediately concerned about the series' low ratings. He wrote to Harlan Ellison, uh, asked if he could use his name in letters to the network to save the show. And so basically, Harlan Ellison is a super prolific writer. Yeah. 1,700 pieces of literature being strips, movies, sto- short stories, books. He, he is famous. He and a committee of scientists write to NBC and ask that the program continue. And they acquiesce. The this, this show will go on. So essentially, the letter writing campaign, the, the letter writing campaign that is famous with the show was actually not necessary. So this was during the early part of the first season? This was, in fact, when the episode that we're about to examine was being developed, he reached out to Harlan Ellison and also had him work on this script. Okay. And so that's why I bring him up. So he, he ends up writing the script for this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a famous writer. He's famous for being very difficult to work with, and we'll get into that in a second. But basically what ends up happening, he's upset with the editing that goes on in this episode. And uh, he also, so he ends up suing Star Trek, suing CBS, or suing Paramount. He makes money for that. He becomes kind of a famous lawsuit guy. He sues, uh, he writes I, Robot, the script. Mm-hmm. Gets embroiled with a with, with beef with whatever Warner Brothers executive, whoever the executive was. And the movie gets scrapped. It doesn't get made for like 20 years by Will Smith. has nothing to do with Harlan Ellison's famous script. He sued James Cameron for Terminator. 
Did he write Terminator? He wrote a, he wrote an episode called The Soldier for I think a program called The Outer Limits or a different science fiction show back in the day. Yeah. And they said that it was used and they end up settling out of court for $337,000. So Harlan Ellison is a definite Man. important science fiction writer. Stephen King refers That's, to... That seems like a pretty good... Like, I need to start doing... I'm just going to write a whole bunch of stuff off. and then just start suing people of the future. <laughs> exactly. Harlan uh, Ellison's screenplay for Star Trek episode The City on the Edge of Forever has been considered the best of the 79 episodes in the series. He has won many awards. Ellison has won eight Hugo Awards. As of 2013, he's the only three-time writer of the Nebula Award for Best Short Story. And Stephen King, in his 1981 book about the horror genre, Dance Macabre, uh, reviews Ellison's collection, Strange Wine, and considered it to be one of the best horror books published between 1950 and 1980. Yeah. So, this is a super special episode. I think you mentioned that it, it, it has like movie-like elements, like almost like movie-like production. Right? Yeah. So then yeah. let's break down the episode. Okay. So, City on the Edge of Forever. So it starts off with their, uh, their traveling, and you can interject if I'm, you if got, I'm not getting the, no, uh, no, you do the terms correct. Here. I'll help out. Yep. So they're traveling through, through space on the Enterprise, and they run into some time ripples yep. that are being projected out through space from a planet. And so I... I find it interesting the way the camera works, where the camera, it, this nothing is actually shaking. The camera's moving, and they're just kind of like flopping around with the camera. And then from from these time ripples, something blows up in the the, the dashboard of. And our man Sulu, Sulu is shocked. Is yes. shocked, and he falls to the ground, and and of course, bones right comes in with a. You know, drug that is considered dangerous or tricky for treatment. Yeah, it's called uh, cordrazine, and <laughs> you can't really you gotta you gotta be real careful with this shit because it's potent. It's like don't drop that yellow cake. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So he he gives them a little bit, and 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 it Captain really, Kirk's all like, "Whoa, hey, serious drug. Maybe you should think about that." <laughs> exactly. And then Bones gives it to him, and then Sulu just wakes up. He wakes up smiling. So he obviously. And Bones is like, you were going to say something medically, Jim? You know, it was really hilarious. Like, Who, me? <laughs> exactly. All coyish. It was very funny. So so then, all of a sudden, uh, these time ripples keep occurring. And then, so, apparently, Bones... <laughs> a medically trained personnel yeah, person. Stabs himself in the stomach. So here's one thing, and I, I'm not going to try to pick apart too much of this episode, but this is one thing that I kind of had a, a, a beef with. Like, why would, like, if you were just going to give this dude a little bit, like, two units, I guess, or whatever they called it, why would you have an entire syringe full of it? Like, why just just put enough in that you need? Like, don't have more of it in a syringe, and don't hold the syringe facing your gut. This was the worst thing about this episode is the intro, rather, the prologue. Yeah. I, I can't tolerate it because it's dumb. Yeah. And actually, now that you mention it, this is one of the things that Harlan Ellison is so frustrated and irritated sure. about in this. So um, my understanding was the original script was going to have someone on the Enterprise dealing drugs, right? Not quite. Or, so, or something that, like that. that, that and they were going to... We'll bring that up later, but that becomes yeah. part of the brief. But what ends up, the original script idea is there's supposed to be some sort of space venom that causes McCoy to freak out. Okay. Instead, Roddenberry has the doctor stab himself with a syringe, which is kind of dumb. And... And, but, and then I think the force Kelly sells oversells a little bit. I think he acts a little too hard. In well, the, so 
his reaction it immediately apparently like if you get too much cordrazine you get you immediately get sweatier he's freaking out yeah it's like super hardcore he starts sweating like crazy and all he can say is killers assassins murderers yes and then here's another thing another flaw in the logic he goes I won't let you get me I'll kill you first so he's accusing them all of being killers murderers and assassins and then he's like I'm gonna kill you first it's not necessarily a flaw in logic because he's supposed to be all fucked up on drugs yeah but I mean if you're if you're accusing someone of being a killer I got you you can't really say I'm gonna kill you but anyhow whatever it's a small thing so he he's losing his damn mind, all sweaty and spotty looking. He's got these red spots that are developing over the course of the course of his cordrazine uh, trip. And while he gets all messed up, he's also able to sneak off and get away from people. He ends up going to the transporter, takes yeah. over the transporter operator, and transports himself down to the planet. Yeah, because he's just got he's got to get away from all the murderers, killers, and assassins. Correct. They're trying to get him. So a landing party must go follow him. The landing party includes Captain Kirk, Spock, Uhura, and yep. Scotty. And I think there's a couple other nameless characters. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they go down there. They can't find McCoy, or they do find McCoy, and they sedate him, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think they sedate him. They subdue him. They kind of grab him. They subdue him, I right? Think, well, the two other guys that were with him, I think, are the muscle, like the guards. Yep, you're right. You're right. Whatever. So they 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 got their their meaty grips on him. And as they're doing that, like, we've been checking out the planet. Captain Kirk and Captain Spock have encountered this guardian of forever. It's this big, like, it looks like some kind of, like, rock. Gate. Gate. Yep. And it's it's roundish, and it's got a hole. It, the, it's middle is empty, and it, it lights up when it speaks. But at first it doesn't speak. So remember, Kirk and, Kirk and Spock are talking, what the hell is this thing, blah, 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 blah. What could it be? And then, like, he finally asks a question, and the, and the Guardian's all like, boom, that's why. You know what I mean? And, like, he, the Guardian ends up being, like, super, super intelligent, super smart, like, checks Spock a couple times. Oh, yeah, it's he's, kind like, of totally hilarious. Like, on Spock. He's all like, like that's, that's the level of your understanding. Like, like that, that kind of joke. And we know that Spock's supposed to be He alludes to that Spock has, like, a limited understanding of technology and science, and he's not. Which is hilarious to us, the viewer, because we know that Spock is... The smartest guy on the block. He's like yeah. he's, he's the most advanced intellectually and, and technologically Kirk, speaking. Captain Kirk's like, are you getting annoyed? And he's not supposed to have feelings, feelings. or emotions. So, so it's kind of funny. funny. Yeah. So like they're talking about what they what he is here. The Guardian tells him, you know, he, he can take you back to any place in time and space. Blah blah. As this happens, DeForest Kelly's character McCoy pulls it together and jumps through the Guardian through yeah. the forever into the past. All slow motion too, like. As soon as he jumps in the past, they're like, contact the Enterprise. They can't contact the Enterprise. It's gone. Yeah. McCoy has done something in the past. Done did something wrong. Fucked everything up. So, uh, Kirk and Spock ask the Guardian if they can go back just before McCoy did and see if they can fix whatever happens. And the guy's like, yep. And then if you do that, everything shall be as it was before. Yeah. So, they're like, oh, sweet. Let's do this. So, they uh, they decide to, to go back through. But at, before they go, Kirk says, hey, listen. We don't come back after a little bit. Y'all gotta, y'all go. gotta jump in through and either try to fix it or go live in the somewhere past else. somewhere. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And that's I mean that's a smart good job, Captain. Yeah. At least you could do. So uh so they jump through there and all of a sudden they're in 
1930s New, New York. York. And they're New York dressed, City. They're dressed in Starfleet gear. So they look like they're in pajamas, and everybody else is wearing their like workman gear, workman work. And one thing that I find hilarious, and it, and it turns out that it's going to be a common theme in, in time travel with Star Trek, is... Like, right when they cross the street, Spock almost immediately gets hit by a car. The, that, that's... There's another episode that I watched oh. where one of the guys got hit by a car after he traveled through time. I didn't know that. All right, fair enough. But, 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 but you alluded to it. All I'm saying is you're traveling through time, man. Watch out for traffic. Like, Agreed. That shit'll, it'll uh, hit the, like, especially if you don't know what a car is because you've been spending so much time in the future. In this episode, I, I was not aware you watched episodes of the future. That's good. But I was saying in this episode, it was, it was it, it's foreshadowing something because it happens more yeah, than several times. Yeah, the yeah. car almost hits somebody, but yeah. to your point. Exactly. But anyhow. Like he he like I don't, he must have never seen a car or some shit like that. Which he never did. Because he kind of looked it. at it. It was all like, who? Yeah, exactly. And Kirk was all like, "Get over here, you Vulcan moron! Yeah, you can get run over." So so then they they realize that they kind of stick out in their uniforms, and Kirk's all like, "Hey, look, let's go steal clothes. those clothes hanging." Yeah, so he steals some clothes. They immediately get spotted by a cop. By a cop, which was funny. And then yeah. and then they assault the cop. The Vulcan puts him in the gives him the Vulcan shoulder pinch, knocks him out. Yeah, they escape. But they assaulted the cop in front of a crowd too. And like so, so they're they're all like Earth. Get they get to Earth. They almost get hit by a car. Steal clothes. Assault the cop. They're 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 on a bad trajectory. Right. Not now. looking good for all the, for all the paradox. Then lovers. they break in. Then they break into a place so that they can warm up and, and change. put their hobo clothes. Yep, exactly. And there they meet. Edith Keeler, played by the famous Joan Collins. Yeah. Uh, real quick uh, about the name Edith. I have my own alternative history with that <laughs> name. Because my daughter, Stella, oh. I I liked the name Edith. And we were, I, I wanted to name her Edith. Um, my wife and kids did not agree. Uh, and this democracy in action took place. We all took a vote. I lost. <laughs> so much like our Twitter polls, I wanted one thing. but Something else happens. The people spoke. And you lost. Her name is Stella now. Understood. So, so yeah, so Edith Keeler comes down there and she's like, like, what are you guys what are you guys doing down there? And this is where Captain Kirk turns on the charm. The William Shatner charm. Kind of gives her a look and is like, We stole these clothes because we have no money. She's all like she has a soft spot for hobos for and bums, yeah, ne'er do wells. Yes, of all and, kinds. and basically she's like, you know what? Fine. As long as they're not on the hooch. Exactly. Fine. You stole that stuff, but if as long as you you know work and keep pull your weight, you can stay here. Yeah. So they. So get, she offers them a job for fifteen cents an hour for ten hours a day, which after I did some quick calculations comes out to a dollar fifty a day. This is nineteen thirty, so yeah. it was a lot of money back then. Yeah, for sure. Like, but you could buy a whole bunch for a nickel. But like so, so uh, they start like living in New York, right? And I think at this point, does does uh, McCoy show up yet? No. So there's a scene that happened that uh, so after oh. after she offers them the work, yeah. they kind of they kind of because I think they're I don't know how long exactly they're on on 1930s Earth. And they allude to this because he he shows up here and he says, "Well, we don't know where he's going to show up. We don't know when yeah. he's going to be here." So they're there for a while. So they kind of jump. To different like You're parts, right. but so the next after that scene where she offers them the work, they're in the soup kitchen that the twenty first twenty uh, first Street Mission that she runs. This is Edith Keeler is running the twenty first Street Mission, which basically takes in homeless guys, guys that don't have a place to stay, gives them coffee, something to eat. But this where she gets the, the catches, yeah, the yeah. catches that they have to listen to her talk, and there's some like real skeezy hobo guy that's talking to 
Captain Kirk. And she looks Alludes. like she's religious. She allu- yeah. there's allusions to her being religious, and she has a black book in hand. So when she when when they act like they have to listen to this speech, you don't know exactly what it's going to be, but you think it's going to be on a religious tilt. Yeah, and then she just all of a sudden just starts saying, "One Science day, fiction. one day we will harness the energy of the atom, fly into space, fly into space, doing all kinds of stuff, uh, space travel, and apparently that's going to make everything great for everyone. Everyone will have food then, something like something. I didn't turn to this. Yeah, and it kind of just like. It, it like I, I wrote here. It, she inexplicably begins to talk about space it, travel. It, it, this one seemed forced, but I could work with yeah. it compared to the doctor stabbing himself with the hyperdermic yeah. <laughs> syringe. So, so a little while later, so Spock, so they're so so now they're Captain gonna live Kirk, it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. No, so she says, "Hey, I know I, I I can get you guys a room in the building that I stand." So they they they're like, "Okay, great." So Captain Kirk says to Spock. Yo, we need to find out what exactly changed in history. So you need to take that little like TV device thing that you've been recording history with, and use some of this 1930s technology and fix to, it to, to, and, and to, to see what's figure going it out. out. Exactly. And th- th- there are some funny lines here, right? Because like now they're living together, they're like in their little apartment, and like Kurt comes back with the groceries, the groceries and Spock's yes. like you bring back you bring back that gold yeah, that like, platinum goes, and that silver some, I need some platinum to like five ounces of platinum Kirk looks at him he's like no I have no gold he's got like a big old sausage in one hand <laughs> and some bread he's like I got bread and sausage like I got you some vegetables right this is all we got so make it work. And so it was funny. He alludes to like you know he's working in these conditions of like like barbaric conditions and Neanderthal conditions. Yeah. And he's beginning to. I think he says like stone knives it, and bear skins. Exactly. Like that, that he's working with. And he begins to develop the thing, right? So we see there's we see the alternative histories, right? We see that she either passes away in a car accident or she is involved in meeting Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the pacifist movement. Yeah. Well, it, well, real quick. So one other thing I wanted to bring up. So when Kirk is charging Spock because he's the captain, he can make him do whatever the hell he wants. You need to build this thing so we can see, you know, what what changed in time. So Spock is all complaining that he doesn't have the right tools. So at one point they're cleaning up the soup kitchen and they see some guys working on clocks and they got these tools. And he likes to find. So tools. he kind of just like so he like he immediately opens up the. Uh, the toolbox and he takes the tools so the very next scene is them in the basement cleaning up and she's all like she's like you open that toolbox and took them tools and i'm like how the hell does she know that <laughs> she just like assumed that these because well i guess you know it does make sense because they have a track record right well, they've already assaulted a cop but i thought she saw him clothing. working on something when oh, she maybe. came in there oh, i thought that's she? what it was i don't know but whatever know. like his well, she knows that he took them She's Kirk, ready to kick fools out, and yeah. Kirk's, like, Kirk's hey, all like, "Wait, remember Spock's like, I was going to return them when I was done with them." Yeah, and then Kirk's like, "If Spock if, says, if Spock he's, says gonna he's going to return them when he's done with them, he's, he's going to return them." When she, and she's like, "Oh, okay, okay. Captain Kirk, you're <laughs> so dreamy." All right, all right. She's like, "On one condition, you walk me home so you can tell me more about yourself." <laughs> so she, he's like, he's like, "Oh hell yeah, I'll do that shit." That's Captain Kirk for you. Yeah, and so, I believe at this point, right now, McCoy shows up. Runs into that bum. Well, they do, yeah. So then, and then we go back to what you were talking about. So he gets he, he with those tools. He's able to finally see what happens. So oh, sees, when they go on their walk, you're right. When they leave, right, is when he sees what's yeah. Which is about. So you're he right, sees two you. two separate. Well, he, well, what he sees is that Edith Keeler has died in a car accident. In a car accident. Yep. 
And then Captain Kirk comes back and he's smitten because he just he loves Edith Keeler now. And then he goes. So then they they look into this box again, and then it looks like Edith Keeler has somehow influenced the president of the United States in some way, no, shape, no, or form. Was, right? Basically, she was pacifist movement leader Edith yeah. Keeler meets Franklin Delano okay. Roosevelt. Yeah. What the headline was? And that was in like 1936. Right. So like six years into the future. Yep. So. So then the, the little thing, this thing that Spock had been building kind of goes haywire. And then, uh, so Spock surmises that we got two possible scenarios here. We have Edith dies, or she influences the president in some way, shape, or form. And then he basically says, Spock's like, uh, Edith Keeler must... First, Jim Kirk Jim well, says, says, I think I'm in love with her. I think I'm in love with Edith Keeler. And Jim... Edith Keeler must die. Yes. So then that that sets up what the final the Tension, third, the yep. third act yep, in, yep. in this in this in the show. So so I, a little while after that is when Bones arrives. He finds a bum still talking that shit about I'm gonna kill y'all. They're gonna try to kill me. Yeah, and this, this bum had just freshly stole, stolen some milk. Yep. And then he's like, "Oh man, this guy's crazy." And then he drops the milk. And then uh, this guy. So Bones kind of latches on to this guy, right? And he follows kind him. of follows him, yep. and then he's like, "Oh, they got to you too!" Or, or no, he can't, no, he thinks he thinks he's like a projection, right? Or like, or he, like he's in some kind of like he doesn't believe that he's really in. Well, but I think at first he's still messed Earth. up. Remember? Oh yeah, yeah. He's all he's all he's all oh, spotty and sweaty still, talking about the murderers and the assassins. And, and so like I can't remember what happens, but he ends up passing out, and the bum picks up the phaser, like he has a phaser. I don't know how he has a phaser. But he took it. He took it like when he was about to oh, leave. He took, he, when he karate chopped that guy. Yes, he took Spock's phaser. He took he well not not Spock's. It was the the guy who like so That's after cool. Bones lost his shit after he stabbed himself with the with the cordrazine. Mm. So then he goes. He's running around calling everyone murderers and assassins on the and Enterprise all, and yeah. sweating sweating the. So he goes into that room where that guy is in charge of, like, where the beaming takes place, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, and then he, like, does some weird, like, karate chop shit, knocks him down, takes his little... Phaser, okay. Phaser. So he is, that, is, that what, is that what that is, a phaser? I yeah. thought it was what they used to beam themselves back and forth. Mm-mm. From Okay. Mm-mm. Oh, so that explains... So that dude just murdered himself, then. Yeah, he... Yes, exactly. Oh, man, I thought, he, I thought he beamed himself back onto the Enterprise. That would have no, been better. He ended up killing himself. Okay. Well, that's good, because that was the skeezy guy that was talking to Captain Kirk all like, well, if she wanted to do something for a guy, yo, yeah. and then he's like, shut up, yep, exactly. shut up, shut up. I don't hear that. Exactly. Because yeah. Kirk's a gentleman. And so, the next day, you know, uh, McCoy wakes up, and now he's a little more with it. Like, he's like, okay, either. Yeah. So, he goes, well, he's wandering, after he meets that guy, and that dude phases himself to death, he's wandering around and just completely just exhausted. And then he sees the 21st Street Mission, and he's like, whew, that coffee looks good. And he starts to be more normal. He's like, okay, and then either he, I'm crazy or you're not real. Yeah, you know, he's, he's starting to rationalize him. Edith more. sees him in the in the place, and she's like, you look terrible. You're all sweaty, and you're all spotty. He's like, Come on in. And yep. she's like, he's like, oh, they're, they're going to find me. And she goes, I got a, pl- a cot back here. No one will find you. Exactly. So then, yeah, he sleeps off the cortisine trip and wakes up. And, and then he constantly thinks that he's in some kind of hallucinatory dream. Yeah. He, he, he doesn't think it's real, but he starts saying, like, he's like, one thing I do like about this dream is Edith. Like, he, he starts to, like, oh, she's dreaming. Be, be like a, be a real charming man with Edith. It, it seems like it's, a, yeah. it's good stuff going on, right? Like, like he, he ends up really forming an affinity towards her. 
Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. you, you kind of see that. Very quickly. And I think in the original script that there was supposed to be a possible love triangle. Between them, exactly. Yeah, but they didn't really... They, I mean, they kind of alluded to it a little bit with the way he's like... He goes, there's something I can do to repay your kindness. Yep. He's... he's Exactly. You're absolutely right. So, so yeah. And then, um, after that, she's like, oh, I'll find you a job somewhere. And she's like, my, my, my man is going to... Or my young man is going to take me out for... A Clark Gable movie. Yeah. Here's where I got confused. Like, apparently they didn't know who Clark Gable was. They seemed to know what a movie was. Yeah, I mean, But I they guess. didn't know who Clark Gable was. Maybe that was part of it that it wasn't explained. Because, remember, it comes back later. Like, it would be like uh, if Jack went back to 1927 and and someone's like, we're going to go see the jazz singer with Al Jolson. I suppose you're right. Like, no, who you're, the hell is Al Jolson? Well, I guess the reason I get thrown off is that because in other parts of the show, and now you put it that way, you're absolutely right. I, sh- I shouldn't look too deep in it. Because in other parts, though... They run into historical figures, and they have all kinds of history down. Like they know exactly yeah. what's going on. But I suppose you're right because Edith Keeler isn't really like a historical figure or, or whatnot. Like, sure. So her and Kirk are going out. Or Clark getting, Gable, yeah, they're going getting ready to go see the Clark Gable movie, and, and so and she, Bones is like, "Who the hell is Clark Gable?" When she says it to him, and Kirk's like, "Who's Clark Gable?" And she's like, "Oh, uh, Doctor McCoy said the exact same thing." And he's like, "Doctor McCoy is here." So yeah, exactly. So you, you kind of went a little fast. So yeah, he she separates from. McCoy to go on her date. Yeah. And then she says, let's go watch this Clark Gable movie. He's like, what? And that's where she's like, yeah. Dr. McCoy says the same thing. He's like, Dr. McCoy, you got to do him right away. So then they go to the 21st Century Mission with, or 21st Street Mission with Spock. Yeah. And like, Edith apparently is, is separated from them and goes against McCoy, right? Like, they see each other. McCoy runs across the street. They hug. It's like a great reunion. Edith's on the other side of the street, yeah. Yep. And then she sees them hugging. And she wants to see what the big deal is. So, like I said, man, like, walk she across starts that walking street. across the street, and you get distracted. That's right all away. it takes. I'm telling and then, you. So, you can see the car coming, and then Bones is all like, I'm going to go save her because I'm, I'm a doctor. Bones, and, and that's what I do is I save people. And Kirk and holds Kirk him. holds him, and he's like, no, don't. Yep. And then, bam, she gets, she gets hit by a car. And he's like, "Do you know what you did?" I could have and saved then, her. Yeah, and then Spock. What Spock says something like, "He knows, Doctor. He knows." Something in that regard. So I think it was a commercial break, and then they come back to the ending, and they're back on the planet. So yeah, they go back to the planet. And he's like, "Let's get the hell out of here." And then he ends it with like, "Let's get the hell out of here." First time hell is used on television. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So time. I mean, it was uh, we uh, we kind of s- summarized it rather bluntly, but. I mean, I, we I highly recommend going and watching it. You can watch it on Netflix if you have your uh, Netflix, or you can buy it on our website. So I have a link for it. I think it's a really good piece of alternative history. Like when you yeah. like in terms of a, of, a, of a production of it. Like well, so like I guess we didn't really say what 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 the actual alternative history that was going to develop if she lived. So basically, oh, yeah, what, what what was going to happen was exactly. so if Edith so the, here's the decision that they were faced with: Edith Keeler dies and everything goes back to the way it is. Edith Keeler lives. Edith, Edith Keeler lives, and she creates a pacifist movement, which delays the United States from entering World War II, which allows which, the Nazis which to allows develop. Germany and the Nazis to develop the A bomb, winning the war, winning the war, and, ba- and basically ruling the entire world, the United uh, the earth exactly and that, that, hence that was the it. federation never gets created hence there is no USS Enterprise is it the USS yes, Enterprise, Enterprise yep, exactly um, 
hence there is no Kirk, Spock, Star Trek, anything. Right. And they would be trapped either on that planet forever or in, in, in the past. In, yes, exactly. So they... Kirk decided to let Edith Keeler die yep. rather than let her live. And he loves her. Yes, Which is a great does. drama. So McCoy loves her too, or will yeah. be loving her, or essentially would love her. A question I would like to pose to you, and which I will, I will, I'll pose to the listeners too, is what would you have done? If, if it was up to you, if you were Kirk, would you let Edith Keeler die, or would you s- save her? Oh, Put it in that situation. I would, I would let Edith Keeler die, because I yeah. know it. But it, it's similar to like that questions like, you know, you have a train. Uh, this train's going to crash and kill a million people, or you can kill one person on that train and nobody dies. Yeah. And yeah. then like, what do you do? A lot of people will say they'll... They'll kill the one person. So and then you reading, make the que- then you make yeah. the caveat. What if that person's your mom? And then I'm like, well, yeah. a, bunch of, a bunch of motherfuckers are gonna die. I'm sorry. I said, for, for, a million yeah. people are going to die. We'll edit that out. So I was uh, I read I, I can't remember if I saw it on something or if I read it somewhere, but so people will disassociate the themselves from the actual killing of someone. So if if they can do something that will allow someone one person to die but save a million they will do it but if they have to actively kill the one person they won't they won't do it so they like let's say if someone's standing on a train in front like so Mm -hmm. Eve Keeler if she's standing in front of the car and she gets hit right like that's easier to do than it would be to push push her her in front front of the car to get her like so if if Kirk had to actively kill her he may have had a harder time doing it than than just passively allowing it to happen and this is alluded to in the show remember we forgot a scene where like she almost falls down some stairs and yeah. Spock and he catches her and Spock's like she could have died right there and be straight and he's yeah. like and he's like Kirk's like no it's not the right time McCoy's not here blah 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 yeah. so like Spock is very logical about this Spock's like let's yeah, kill this let's, let's get, this let's over get, get her out exactly. like I want to get back home I got some I got some shit I haven't done I got laundry that's just been sitting for the last couple weeks <laughs> so so that was it, right? Like that, that, that was that was the alter that that was the the dilemma, right? Letting her live yeah. and letting the Nazis win, or letting her die and getting back to normal. Like, and it was like, like when you watch it, it's done well. Like, like on t- it's it's done really well. Joan Collins is is is, oh, is a revelation on screen. She's she's wonderful. Like, I know yeah. like, she's kind of like a little silly because she she's so quick to fall in love. As is Captain Kirk, but it's still very I mean, good. In the, in the constraints of an hour television, you gotta do it. I understand. I like how they. I like how things they, that need to be fast forwarded. They hid Spock's ears. Like yeah. I thought that was good. I really didn't like the, the prologue, but once the prologue got through, I thought the rest of the episode was really, really solid. Once like, they got to 1930s Earth, it was it, it flowed real well. Little, well done. Well written. Um, like you said, the beginning was a little hokey. The ending was fantastic. Yep, I mean, so good, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it really is. And like I, I just love the. Uh, yeah, I, I just love how it poses the question and it makes you really think. Like, it's, it's it's some real deep science fiction shit. Deep science fiction stuff, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It was really, really good. So, let me continue with, with, with Joan Collins. That's what I want to talk about. She's a Golden Globe winner uh, in 1982 for a portrayal for Alexa Colby and is consequently credited with the success of the show Dynasty. I've never seen that show, but I remember. Yeah, I remember I'm very being familiar on with it. it. Uh, she made her screen debut in 1951. On a bunch of movies starring some real heavyweights. So, like, for example, she's in a film called Rally Around the Flag Boys with Paul Newman. She's also in some movie with Bing Crosby and Bob Bob Hope. Like, she's, she's a famous actress. She takes a break from acting to pursue uh, raising a family. Mm-hmm. When she makes a comeback, she doesn't come back to the movies. She comes back to television, uh, particularly as guest stars in shows like Mission Impossible, The Virginian, 
and Star Trek. Yeah. So the crew was surprised as hell when uh, the actress Joe Collins expressed interest in appearing in the show. Uh, it turns out that her daughter liked the program. Yeah. And so that's yeah. how she got on it. And then what I found interesting, Collins would later recall that Keeler was a Nazi sympathizer, a view which was supported by, by biographies to the actress. Like, I didn't know that, and Harden Ellison said that he did not intend that to be a character trait. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't really see that in the... Me neither. She's just a passive, right? I, yeah, a passive, like, she seems like she would be, like, I wouldn't call her a Nazi sympathizer, but I think she would, she would interact with Nazis. Like, she would, I don't think, she seems like the kind of person, like, as long as you're not on on the hooch, like, she even mentions that, you know? Yeah. Like, if you, if you got a crutch, like, if you, if you can't stop drinking, get out of my mission, you... You, exactly. you silly goat, you. Yep. But uh, so I could see that, like you, you, her coming to that conclusion. But it, it is not like implied. It's, it's not, not specific, implied, right? No, no. I, I think. So. I mean, you could extrapolate that out, but I mean, I think she would be a sympathizer with a lot of unsavory things, just because she's tries to see the good in everything. Agreed. Yeah. So I, I found Joan Collins' participation to be interesting uh, in terms of the awards that this uh, episode won. Because obviously, you and I both think it's a pretty good episode. If this is your first introduction to Star Trek and you think yeah. people should watch it, uh, Harlan Ellison's original version of Teleplay won the annual uh, Writers Guild of America Award for Best Episodic Drama on Television. However, uh, you can you can well, what's the term I'm looking for? Submit whichever version of script you want to submit. So he submitted the one that was not televised. Yeah, it so he was, won that it award. Was the one that he had because uh, by the time it got to TV, it it had been kind of altered and. Updated by Roddenberry and maybe another writer or two. I forget exactly. Exactly, and plenty of writers. That that's his beef. Yeah. So like, so he he so he ended up putting in the one that he wanted. But uh, he's famous for he's really famous for if he's not happy with the product after it's being edited, he changes his name from Harlan Ellison and puts Cord Wayner Bird as an alias uh, to let people know that he no longer had control of the episode. So. He submitted the one that he originally wrote, but he never took his name off of the one that they filmed. It's like uh, the directors do that, Alan Smithy or something like that. It's like if a they director do. is is feels that the, their original work was destroyed or edited beyond what they what their vision was, they can use a credit like I think it's like Alan Smithy or something. Okay. I may be wrong. something like that. I hear you. Well, I yeah. think you're right. I've, I've heard something like that. So essentially. He wins, he wins for his script for the writer guide, and then uh, The City on the Edge of Forever was awarded a Hugo in 1968 for Best Dramatic Presentation. So Harlan, Harlan Ellison wins the award twice, mm-hmm. which is cool, right, for him, yeah. but it causes a great deal of friction with him and Gene Roddenberry, because Roddenberry essentially changed the script to the shit that, that Harlan Ellison did not like, and Ellison just loudly blasted it. Specifically the stuff that I don't like. Like you said, yeah, we talked about the very beginning. Silly. It made no yeah. sense to have the doctor stab himself with a needle. It's not like you have that much cord cordrazone around like in a needle. Period. Well, it's not like you only needed to give him a little bit. Like you like you know that dose that like you're a doctor, you should know that that amount of that amount of dosage will drive you insane. And furthermore, it's not like it's not like he put his hand into a bucket of syringes and stuck himself. Like yeah. you know, he like he knows how to operate syringes. Like like how did it, how did it like yeah? You can just stab yourself with a syringe, but you have to actively put the plunger down to get the whatever's inside the syringe inside of you. So so beef with beef with some of the edits so much so that Gene Roddenberry fires back. Then one of the edits. 
Holland Ellison has Scotty doing drugs and selling drugs, <laughs> which Holland Ellison says is preposterous. Yeah. And after years of research, there is no evidence of any script showing that Scotty was a drug dealer. So, like I say, they end up beefing with each other pretty much for the rest of their life. There is a small uh, piece of time where they get back together and are cool. And in this time is when they develop Star Trek the movie. So, like, they uh, they have they ask Ellison for some of his ideas. It kind of only lasts for a little while because Ellison starts running his mouth off again about yeah. this episode to the point where eventually he sues Paramount and sues Star Trek and gets 35% of the royalties from this episode. <laughs> like... That, that's the that I think that is the racket is write stuff and then sue people for like changing yeah, it. You know what I mean? What yeah, what he likes to do. I mean, he obviously is a talented writer because people keep going to him. But I mean, if you hire him, you probably should be well aware that he's probably going to sue your pants off you at some point in the near future. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, this episode. All right. So this episode airs uh, April 6, nineteen sixty-seven. A twelve city overnight. Trendex report, never heard of that, compiled by the Nielsen ratings, showed that for the first half hour, it held the second place ratings behind uh, Bewitched with 11.64 million viewers compared to Bewitched's 15.4 million, and the episode beat My Three Sons on CBS. Uh, during the second half, it remained in second place with 28.4% of the audience uh, behind Love on a Rooftop on ABC. Uh, the thing that I think that's fundamental about this about this uh, Episode 2 for the whole Star Trek franchise. So, I don't want to make the Star Trek podcast or Star Trek episode. But if you've seen Star Trek 2, which is the best movie in the bunch, is what people will tell you. The big theme in that is that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Mm -hmm. That's kind of something that we see here almost instinctively, right? And the way that they hide... uh, The way they hide Spock's ears, you see in other... Iterations when they go into the past or in the future, like that—that's what they do. Like, like this is one of like the templates for the rest of the franchise. Is another reason why this episode is such a big deal. Like, I, I really, I think it's really, really good. Like, uh, so good that in terms of their list of best all-time episodes, this is almost always a number one I saw or number three. It was, yeah, it was usually one of the top episodes on people's lists. And the few episodes that are also on that list are also episodes of time displacement done by by Star Trek. Or, not time displacement, but rather alternative histories. So, it's on top of my list because it's the only episode that I've seen. And so the reason I suggested that we do quick research on one, like, The Inner Light was one that I well, Actually, I lie. I did see that one, too. That one was actually really good. Phenomenal. And that's the next episode of Star Trek to win a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic yeah. a televised episode and it's the first one since City on the Edge of Forever I would re- I highly recommend that one uh, for viewing that one I didn't see like a lot of like so you could kind of see where uh, City on the Edge of Forever was going mm-hmm. did not see where that inner light one was going and the other really really fantastic alternative history from DS or from Star Trek is DS9 it's called Beyond the Stars and so they reimagined themselves as science fiction writers in the 50s where the captain, who's a black man in the future, That's really the struggles with some shit in the 50s. Yeah. And it was such a strong episode. I saw, I, I, I unfortunately didn't make it through all that one because of time constraints, but that when he goes back into the past... He gets hit by by cab. Oh, right? see, that's what that's I didn't know that. Okay, like, okay, he, okay, like people are that. constantly yep. getting hit by automobiles in these in these time traveling scenarios on Star Trek. So 
I'm just telling, like, as a warning out there, if you're traveling through time, watch, like, immediately when you get there, watch out for cars. Well, you gotta be careful. Exactly. Yes. So, like, so like the point I'm making is that Star Trek does a really good job of their alternative histories. Sure. Like, they put their characters in really good spots, and they're clever of how they do time travel. So, say, sometimes if they can screw it up by traveling back in time. Sometimes they'll have, like, an artifact that affects a race based on time. So you have this uh, one episode. I'll, I'll be done real quick. There's an episode called, like, A Piece of the Action, which is set in a world that's, like, 1920s gangsters mm-hmm. because a colonist at one point brought a book on the 1920s gangsters of Chicago. And, like, that's where they basically decided it was based on this book. Or there's another one where, like, uh, in the next generation, it's called Casino Royale. An astronaut who disappeared had a book with them. They go to this planet and they enter the they enter the setting of the book. It turns out that the aliens that found this uh, found this astronaut created this place for him based on this book. So it was set in like the late eighties. Very clever how they do that kind of time travel shit. Like I, I, that's what I recommend about Star Trek. Like to each their own when it comes to science fiction. I know it's not the best genre for some people. Some people don't like it. But if you're gonna look at some stuff in Star Trek, look for the alternative history episodes. Is what I would recommend. Sure. Yeah, definitely. They're the two. The two that I watched fully were, were rather well done and um, fun to watch. I, I think that's. I think that's alternative history. I'm sorry. I think that's this episode. I think that's what I want to say. I think it was a good, good alternative history on TV. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I think we both agree that we are gonna stick with how they how they did it. But like Edith Keeler must die, as as Spock says. So. What do you guys think? Should should, should she have died, or should she should she have stayed alive? Uh, yeah, let us know. Uh, we're, we're gonna put a Twitter poll up. Um, you can email us at alternative history podcast uh, at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at althistorypc. We're on iTunes. Please listen. Please rate. Please Google subscribe play. on Google Play. Yep. Please comment. Please. please like. And thank you for listening. Thank you for taking out the time. And in the, uh, the words of Captain James T. Kirk, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> Have a great day, everybody.